Welcome to The Nudge with Kia Eileen. The nudge is that almost indescribable feeling that you get. It may be a niggling in your belly or a thought that repeatedly drops into your awareness. Whatever it is, it just won't let go. On The Nudge with Kia Eileen, you will hear wisdom from those who have all followed their nudges, be it in life, love, or business. Each episode is a conversation about following the call of the soul. So I invite you to come on the journey with us as we follow the nudge, because you never know where it may lead. Today's guest is Dr. Adrian Bay. In light of recent tragic events, it seemed both timely and necessary to have Dr. Bay join us to discuss the feeling of futility and making a difference, white identity and privilege, reasons why people riot, the effect of microaggressions, and the importance of knowing and understanding history. Dr. Bay is a full professor and director of the Center for Teaching Excellence at Wilmington University. She attended the University of Delaware, where she earned a master's degree in social work and a PhD in human development and family studies. She is a licensed mental health clinician and a certified leader in diversity training. Dr. Bay also has over 25 years experience coaching adolescents and their families and young adults in a community-based setting. You don't want to miss today. So grab a cup of something delicious and join us as we follow the nudge, because you never know where it may lead. Hello, 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 and welcome to The Nudge with Kia Eileen. This is your host, Kia Eileen. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Each guest that I invite on has answered a calling that in some way facilitates healing and deepens our understanding of our limitless nature. Recent events have had us witness the horrific murder of George Floyd at the hand of a police officer. So this podcast and the next few that I will be doing will focus on how we move forward, not just in the Black community, not just in the U.S., but globally. So today I am joined by Dr. Adrian Bay. Adrian is a full professor and the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence at Wilmington University. Adrian, it's so lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Um, So we're talking about the recent events um, of George Floyd um, and how that sort of not just swept the U.S., but really swept the globe. Um, It's really kind of captured everyone. What was your reaction as a woman, as a black woman, as a mother um, when, when this happened? What was your reaction? 
Well, really, uh, well, first, let me thank you for inviting me here. And um, I appreciate the, the opportunity to have this discussion because, mm. you know, for the past, for several years, I've been doing diversity trainings uh, with corporations, within higher education, within the community. And just most recently over the last nine months, I've been ebb and flowing with it. You know, I'm in and out of it. And I've been making a concerted effort to really learn about white racial identity mm. over the past nine months. So when this occurred, I was, uh, I, I was numb. Like it was, you know, we hear about these things happening and they've been happening throughout history. Even over the past 10 years, it's been happening but this time seemed a little bit different. And mm-hmm. I think the difference is that we were in the middle, already in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. We were already at home. We were already isolated. And I think that the, 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 the isolation and being a captive audience has really struck everyone. So watching the media and the things that we're encouraged to do in isolation or I should say encourage to do the things that we have been doing in isolation, which mm-hmm. means we're increasing our consumption of um, social media as well as the media a- a- at large. We were seeing it over and over again, more and more graphic. And, uh, and with the media, they kept zeroing in on the officer's face. Mm-hmm. I think that that has really um, been impactful to let people see that the callousness uh, and the the value that someone can not place on someone's life. And I think, so I was numb. I was thinking that, oh my God, it kind of um, highlighted my passion around talking about diversity and the importance of it. So in a sense, I felt like my life work, work yeah. um, come to a head, so to speak. Because sometimes when you're in this work, you feel like you're in the valley, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're pushing and you're doing these one-off workshops and you're talking to people individually and you kind of wonder, am I really making a difference? Am I really doing my part? Is this, is this valuable? Is it worthwhile? And when this occurred, it just dawned on me that yes, this work is important and we need to continue that work. It's not something of the past. Racism is not something of the past. It's current and getting people to see, especially those people who benefit Mm, for the privilege mm. that they've had and they've been given the benefit of the doubt and they've taken that that privilege for granted really getting them to open their eyes to see hey you have a part to play in this and and that's really interesting on so many levels that sort of numbness um to it all um and would you say that the numbness came from yet yeah, another black man or the feeling that, as you said, am, as, is what I'm doing making a difference? You know, what was, what, what was that numbness about for you? Yeah, I think both. I think the, uh, the numbness of, am I doing, what, am, what, what have I been doing? Here, here this is happening again. Mm. So what I'm doing must not be working. Mm. The answer, because I'm a social worker by trade. Actually, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. So I'm a social worker by trade. I'm a counselor educator. So I teach people how to help people especially when it comes to mental health. And when you're involved in those endeavors and those teachings, you're hoping that, at least I'm hoping that, I am kind of like the trainer trainer. I'm helping you, I'm equipping you to go out to help others. And 
these things are occurring. They continue to occur. There's a whole movement of multicultural educators or diversity trainers out there. Is what we're doing enough? And mm-hmm. it's kind of like a slap in the face, like, see, you know, here we are again. And what are you doing with this? Is, is yeah. this, anyway, so I was going through if, if what I've been doing or what I've made my life passion or what has become my life passion as far as work is concerned. Yeah. Is this the road that I should be traveling? So that was one piece. It was like a slap in the face, like, hey, look at what you're doing. Is it yeah. working? And I and I think, you know, I, I had a little bit of that feeling as well. You know, I, I live in the UK and everything up until sort of a, a few months ago, maybe even before COVID, felt like, okay, you know, we're we're progressing. This feels good. Uh, we're all doing well. And this had this gave me the feeling that was like, oh, we haven't actually come as far as I thought. Um, which was really, which was really scary, and and I felt quite a lot of grief around that. Um, and so we'll talk about grief and how we transmute grief in in a moment. But you also brought up something really interesting as well, and you said you you do you're doing a lot of work currently around white identity, and um, there's there's a whole sort of movement if you watch if you look at um, social media and if you read any of the posts around white privilege. And exactly what that is and getting people to recognize that and admit that and admit the benefit of having white privilege. Can you speak to, you know, listeners about how you define white privilege? Um, well, I think, well, I can, you can de- define it in many ways, so to speak, when you're talking about race and racial identity and what you see happening in America. I think we have a, a great case study, this mm. social experiment that, has really not met up to the ideas that even whites had anticipated it having. So white privilege is is essentially white people, the white race, a a group of people who benefit from demeaning or degrading or viewing more lowly other races so they can have power. Mm -hmm. So they benefit from whatever there is to benefit from within our social systems, our legal systems, and our government. So it's having the privilege and having the benefit of the doubt, and which, which I think it really boils down to. Even, even when people say, well, I'm not privileged, because we think of privilege as class, as having resources. And we know a lot of white Americans, white people in general, they can, always, they can, some, they can dismiss white privilege if they feel like that they have not grown up in the upper or the middle or upper class, because they can say, you know, I grew up in poverty. I grew I had to work, pull up my bootstraps. I had to work for the things that I had to work for. I struggled, yada, yada, yada. But the thing that white privilege says, yes, that may be true. However, even when all of those things are controlled for, you are still given the benefit of the doubt because of the color of your skin. Mm. So it becomes the benefit of the doubt in its lowest form. Mm-hmm. So the idea of white privilege is that people who have white skin are able to benefit from the systems that have been set up, mm-hmm. the criminal justice, the economic system, or any system that has been established and the rules are in place where white people with white skin will benefit more than people who do not have that white skin. Because I will say, even for our brothers and sisters who say, well, you know, I'm from Italy I'm from Ireland. I'm not a white American, and I'm talking about Americans spe- uh, specifically. Um, and even those Hispanic people who have light skin, if people perceive you as being white, mm-hmm. 
you're given that benefit of the doubt. You have the opportunity to, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to pass in that and, and, and reap those benefits. And what happens now, we're in a place where when that privilege has not been challenged, especially when the privilege is unwarranted, and we know privilege based on skin color is unwarranted. Mm-hmm. So going on for so long and people are oppressed, are oppressed for so long, then you see the reactions that you see to today. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of time. But I think that we've had these reactions in the past, uh, especially in light of police brutality and the killings of unarmed, innocent, uh, unarmed black men who, who are innocent for the, the death penalty that, that's been um, imposed on them at that moment. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you think that, you know, you can only oppress people, but for so long. Mm-hmm. And when you think about privilege and there's this root of privilege, which is oppression, mm-hmm. in order for you to exercise your privilege, you're oppressing someone. And people can be oppressed only but for so long. And we're seeing this now as we look at our protests and the peaceful, peaceful protests. And I think the intent is to be peaceful about it. However, when you sit down and you start thinking about the years Mm -hmm. and years and years, and it's not just going on in the United States, it's going on all over the world. And we know that now, and I think it's being highlighted because we have people who are protesting all over the world and they're standing in solidarity with the U.S., but they're also highlighting the ha- what's happening within their own communities. And with oppression, you know, that, you know, no one's going to sit by, it's like a bullying situation. You see a lot of times where kids are getting bullied. I'm trying to use this as a metaphor and an analogy. Sure. At one point, the, the victim is going to, they're, they're going to turn. They're going to take it only but for so long. And we have to recognize that this is that same kind of, we're, we're experiencing that same kind of concept. That's it. Eventually the victim fights back. Um, right. And in, in what we're seeing on the news and especially what broadcast to, uh, to us over here in the UK, we're not seeing a lot of the peaceful protests. I've seen more footage of the peaceful protests on social media, but on mainstream media, we've been seeing a lot of the riots. And I even had friends, I'm originally from Philadelphia, and I had friends over here sending me notes saying, you know, is your family okay? And I was going, what do you mean? Are they okay? And they said, well, the riots in in Philly. And I was like, what riots? And you know, that's what we're, we're shown over here. And then now there's a there's sort of a conversation that's starting to happen where do you condone the riots and the protests? And I was like, well, I think we have to understand. Um, I even had a discussion with my husband about this. I was like, you can't necessarily condemn the riots without understanding the emotion that's under that. And I think, and I think that's a little bit of what's going on. I think there is some opportunism going on there, of course. Um, but I think there's an undercurrent of, what feels like maybe powerlessness and you know is that your is that your sort of take on that as well yeah um as far as the looting and the rioting is concerned again people are angry Mm. and you think about it you know from a mental health perspective what happens when you allow that anger what happens to anger that festers over time it turns into rage Mm -hmm. and when someone is enraged what happens to their behavior a lot of times we don't know how we're going to respond when you're that. Have you ever been angry before? Like angry, angry before? And if you've experienced that, if anybody's experienced that, they should be able to understand 
why there is what we consider the acting out or looting. Like you said, there are opportunists out there that are waiting for um, someone to be that much enraged. They can t- take advantage when it comes mm-hmm. to the part. But some people are like I've heard there's there's a um, uh, a facility in California called the Rage Room. Mm. And they have an area that you can go to. You can put on a helmet. You can have a bat. There's a old cars, old windows, spray paint. And you can go in and you can bang up the car and do all the things you need to do to get your anger out. In a therapeutic setting, mm-hmm. you have you, um, those rooms, those padded rooms where people can go in, scream at the top of their lungs. You have to get that rage out. And I think what we're seeing is that we have a society that has been suppressing their anger. We have mm-hmm. victims of racism. Um, of the systems that have been in place to marginalize them. I think that we have that body of people, and it's not just one or two people. We think it's isolated. It's not isolated. It's, it's, a, it's a whole entire system that's oppressed a whole generation of people, a whole race, and maybe not just one generation, two or three generations. So you have this anger that needs to be expressed. And I think that's what the, the looting and rioting is about. And you think about it, the things that they're looting and rioting against or um, think about those stores that kind of symbolizes consumerism and capitalism. If, you know, if I as a person of color would come into your store, you would be profiling me as soon as I walk in in the door. Mm -hmm. You know, really the the, the riots and to me, the rioting and looting seem to have a specific purpose Mm -hmm. in, in certain areas. There's a specific purpose to what they're doing. There are opportunists, yes, but Think about anger and rage and what that does, especially if you don't let it out in appropriate ways. I just read a post, a Facebook post that um, actually a white woman shared and I was so moved by it. And she was trying to explain to her white friends, colleagues, readers, um, trying to help them understand this idea of why people are looting and rioting. No, they're not wild animals out there for you to be able to say, see, I told you that's why they need, that's why we need to suppress them because they're wild. She said, no, imagine this. I have two sons. If that, if one, if one of my sons had that same experience with a cop leaning on, leaning, kneeling with their knee on my son's neck and he stayed there until that person became unresponsive and I and during I don't know if, if you're you're um, if you've watched the entire video Mm-mm, no about how he called for his mama he called for his mom imagine this his mother has been gone mm-hmm. they they said that she passed several years ago a couple of years ago and even this last moment he's calling for his mother she said if that was my son and I watched that video or I was able, I witnessed him calling for his mother I'm his mother. I will be just as angry, I, and, and then there's no justice. Me, myself, I will be out there looting, tearing up, um, expressing my anger in any way that I can because, you know, we're talking about human life, mm. my basic humanity and the right to breathe. Mm. Who, who has the right to take that away from someone? Who but God? Who? So she was trying to get her, you know, so when you don't, Thinking along those lines, again, when I've been learning more about racial identity over the past several months, I've been in groups specifically with white um, people identify as white and having these specific conversations around racism. And how did you learn what you learned? Where do these ideologies come from? How do you not know and not see what's going on and around you and your Mm -hmm. community and your environment? 
And I've learned that they've really been able to um, uh, situate their lives in a way that they don't, they can ignore mm. all the racial things that happen and, and believe that that's them. That's happening to them. That's happening outside of me and not us. And again, I think it has a lot to do, again, that benefit of the doubt. Mm. It's also when you do hear the information and you, and you start becoming concerned, you'll hear someone else white come through and say, well, no, that's not really what it is. It's really X, Y, and Z. And because of that benefit of the doubt, I'm going to believe this person yeah. versus that person. There's a thing, a story just that just came through recently about Drew Brees, the quarterback. Um, oh, the, yes. Of uh, the New Orleans Yeah. Right. And he was upset about people kneeling and he said, oh, I didn't understand. I thought it was about the military. And um, so I really missed the mark. And it made me really realize again, here we is, here it is, that benefit of the doubt thing. Now, Kaepernick told you why he was kneeling. He explained, this is why I'm doing this. But because somebody else said, oh, no, he's doing it because of the military. He's trying to, you know, disrespect our military, disrespect our troops, disrespect our flag. That's why he did it. He went from listening to Kaepernick, the person who was explaining why he was doing it, and believed the other narrative, again, because of that benefit of the doubt. For some reason, we're not even believed we're asked why we do what we do. So we allow other people or they've allowed other people to explain things for us. So mm. I think part of the issue too is why you, you don't see because you're not listening. Yeah. It's other commentary, not ours. And, you know, they're not listening because they've never had to listen. They've exactly. never had to listen. They've never had to listen to our narrative. And the comments from, you know, the president calling people thugs and terrorists um, isn't helpful. And and it I think it also points to where we get information and, and what information right. we trust to right. sort of ingest and take in. And I know, as you mentioned, you do diversity training for corporates and for organizations really does speak to, do we really need diversity training? Do we really need it? (laughs) Yeah, I think we need it. I think more so now, I I think we've always, well, that's why I engaged in in, in doing it. Cause I, you know, I've seen it, I've witnessed it. I've heard all the stories. So I think there's a need. Um, I think we just got to get more people willing, the people who this greatly impacts. Because sometimes in some of these diversity trainings, you're, you're preaching to the choir mm, mm-hmm. people who are there who already kind of buy into what you're saying anyway, and they want to come to learn more. But those people who are resistant, and that's one interesting thing, because I, I have facilitated workshops for groups who want to learn. They come together on purpose. Come on, let's have this discussion. And when you sometimes when you go to corporate trainings, you know, they're forced, the employee, the workforce is forced to come. You need to go to this workshop because I said you need to go. And there there are different dynamics within that. But what I've learned is that the conversation needs to be balanced. Mm. People need to feel validated, even in their wrongness. When I I say wrongness, um, how can I say that? Uh, Because I don't want to invalidate people's um, experience, so to speak. But even if you have distorted beliefs about what actually is, mm. there's still there's still a fine line as a facilitator that you have to kind of tread, so to speak, or walk to validate those people, to validate their experience, to bring them into some new knowledge. And that's what it is, bringing mm. people out of old knowledge into new knowledge. 
And those are the workshops that I think that are critical mm. for have. But people need to be willing to lend an ear. That's it. And 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 I think that's where we struggle. I think now what's happening now has um, raised people's consciousness. I'm talking about uh, white uh, people from the white population. I'm going to say white Americans. So I, I keep wanting to say white Americans, but I, I know that this is happening throughout the world. That's it. White people are starting to have a consciousness, especially those who who we would say are liberal, so to speak, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who really believe in um, community and humanity. I think they've been sleeping too. And I think what's happening is that this has woken up a lot of people. Now we've gotten a lot of people who say, now, okay, so I'm awake now. What can I do? That's it. That's it. Because it's, it's, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, it's not just enough to say, I'm not a racist. Right. We need, we need deeper discussions and, and progress on, on this topic. What can we do? What actions can we take together? It's not enough for for you to say, you know, invite me to your barbecue. Um, We need to have critical discussions and critical thinking around, around this issue. So I I interrupted you. Sorry about that. No, I was going to say, but think about how much courage that will take for someone. So, you know, my prayer is always that people would get the courage. If I'm someone that has grown up under a racist ideology, one who grew up in a family who didn't believe some, a certain thing, period. But I'm trying to now help my family to evolve with some new knowledge, that takes courage. Mm. And it's the same thing. Not only are, are, are white people tasked now when they say, what can I do? Not, are you, not only are you tasked with learning yourself and building yourself up, but now you got to start speaking out within your spheres of influence, yes. within your families, within your friendship groups, within your community. And it is hard. I'm learning, going through the racial identity groups. Again, like I said, we get together on purpose, uh, people of color, um, and white people, and we have open discussions together so we all can benefit from the information shared so we all can be courageous in fighting this thing that we know is racism. And they uh, talk a lot about how hard it is to talk to their family about things. A lot of them get ostracized from mm-hmm. their family mm-hmm. for, these, for these views. And I applaud those people who say, you know, I don't care if I'm getting ostracized. I'm still going to show up to the family functions. As soon as someone makes a racist joke, I'm not going to laugh. I'm going to call somebody on it. Or if they say something that doesn't appear to be sensitive to a person. And it's not just race. We're talking about race, gender, ethnicity, ability. I mean, it goes on in sexuality, sexual expression, gender identity. I can go on. It's not even just a race thing, religion. I mean, we have to be able to have open discourse about all of those issues. It's a difference thing. When did it get to be, you know, that you could ridicule someone or point someone up for a difference? We are all different, right? And, but we're all part of the same race, which is the human race. And so it's, it's really about kind of moving more toward this, this really kind of central understanding that underneath it all, we're all going to bleed red at the end of the day. I posted something yesterday. I was speaking with my grandmother and she was watching the funeral of George Floyd. And she made some comments around the fact that she couldn't believe that it was still happening. The same things that she was sort of seeing in her youth, 100 this year. Um, She was born in 1920. And some of the things that she experienced maybe in her youth, things were getting better. My mother went to a university down in the South in North Carolina and did lots of marching and sit-ins and things of that nature. And she said, I thought things were getting better. 
And now it feels like we're back to where we started. And this is a, a woman who's almost 100 years old. And so, you know, we were talking about and hinting to this generational trauma that we're starting to really realize is impacting people. What do we do? What do we tell? How do we help our youth? How do we help the young people who are seeing this? How do we get them out of this sense of hopelessness that nothing's really changing? What do we do for the young people? I think one thing, first of all, I think we need to recognize that our young people may not know the history. Remember, mm-hmm. they're not teaching the history like they should be teaching history because Black history is very much a part of American history, and is, is, is especially in America. So a lot of youth, even African-American youth, white youth, they're not really taught mm-hmm. um, our history of slavery in a well-rounded way. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, th- they, they, they learn about slavery and then that's it. They think that's the beginning and they think that that's the end of Black history. So I think one thing we need to do is we need to educate young people about people who are different from them. Understand, understand what historical significance, um, what historical significance of what's happening today. Understand what the, the significance of that. So they need to be educated. So now you say, okay, I'm educated now and I know this is not right. What am I supposed to do? Well, we need to channel that energy. Mm. Anger can be good or bad. You know, anger, strong emotions are things that can lead us to destruction, so to speak, and destroying things, especially if it's not contained. But anger, controlled anger leads to action. Mm. So you talk to young people and, you know, I I understand how you're doing. So let's talk about those feelings. Okay, so now you have those feelings. We've identified what they are. What do you think that you can do to help the cause, to help alleviate that anger that you may be feeling Mm -hmm. and support them in that? Listen to their, if you want to go out and protest, okay, well, let's do that. Let's find a way that we can do it in a safe way. Um, Let's find what we need to do. I mean, there has been organizations, little satellite, little little, satellites, fractions of organizations throughout the country that have been teaching social advocacy, mm. you know, March, how do you protest? How do you enact legislation, legislative change? How do you influence policy? So, you know, finding those organizations and supporting them and cause they're teaching how to, to, to do what we're doing. If you look at what's happening now, we're a little bit over a week now from what happened with um, Floyd and you, I'm noticing the nature of the protests change. Mm. I'm also noticing that the people who are protesting, the, the, the face of the protests have changed. Now, I think in any historical movement, we notice that young people, I think, have been always the ones who are out front taking charge. They have the energy, they have the motivation, and they're there. And I'm thinking, and I'm seeing the same thing now. There are a lot of young people out there protesting. And I think what's different when you say what's different now than what's than what was before, because really things are really not different. I mean, we do have more opportunities, but that undercurrent of racism is still there. But the face of the supporters um, of those who are allies to this movement, who want to see change, who want to see equity, who want to see equality, that face is changing. So you see a lot of white people out there now protesting where you might not have seen that in the 60s. And was that different? It Was that different a week ago? So you said you've noticed the, the sort of face of the protesters and 
and kind of the, the feel of the protest itself has changed. And is that what's changing that you can see over this week, over, over just this week? Yeah, yeah that's what I'm yeah. thinking. That's what I see as yeah. a change, that there are more allies, mm, mm. More, more people are willing to, are more courageous. And, and if you look at the faces, the young people, they're tired of this. Yeah. And they're also the ones who say, well, you know, I wasn't around during slavery times. I wasn't there when my ancestors did that. I, I wouldn't agree with it. But also in that, they still got to recognize their privilege that they've right. been able to benefit from, even though they weren't there, even though they don't believe in it. But I, but I think that there is a body out there, a, a body of, of um, people out there who, who are vested and who want to see change because they've been isolated for so much and uh, for so long and kind of insulated, so to speak, from what's been going on. Now they're out and they're like, okay, now they don't know what to do. And it's funny, it's, it's interesting to me when we would have our discussions, our racial discussions, and some of the participants will say things like, well, I just didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know that this was this and I didn't know that this meant that. And I didn't know, we think about microaggressions and all those little things mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to, to uh, assault people and, and verbally and um, behaviorally. And, I'm, and my question was always, well, how, do you, how did you not know? Like, how do you not know? And they really expressed embarrassment. You know, I'm embarrassed because I don't have any explanation. Because I'm thinking as a mature adult, if this was anybody else, if this was happening to somebody, a fellow uh, white person, you would see it. Yes. Maybe. And, and, and what they said to me was maybe or maybe not. Interesting. And it was very interesting to me. So it gave me a whole different perspective. They said, you know, we are a very individualistic culture. Mm. even by nature, we're only thinking about ourselves anyway. So for us to be, have the idea, and again, this is just one person's anecdote. Um, so for us to, to, so the idea of us to, to look outside of ourselves for meaning, for support, for anything, that's foreign to us as a culture. And I could see that because, you know, people of color, we're, we come from a collectivist background. Yes. We think of family. We think of friends. We have kinship groups. We look for support in others. And what happens to others happens to us. And we, we, that's, in our, that's embedded in our psyche. And I was informed that for white people, not so much. So, again, having those conversations, me having that conversation, I would have never known that. It, I, it would have never dawned on me that that's the lens they're viewing this from. That's interesting, you know, looking at it through just a different lens, different different eyes, different perspective. I don't think I would have ever known that. It's it's natural to me to kind of the way that we are in our community. I thought I would think that everyone was like that. Um, and how very interesting that it's much more on an individual level. And it becomes easier to compartmentalize. That experience belongs to them. It doesn't belong to me. If... I'm compartmentalized. I'm separate from everyone, regardless of race. Um, and that's why they say I'm not racist. And they're looking at you like, what do you mean? I'm, and so they don't understand. I'm not talking about you as one individual person. I'm talking about the collective. Yeah. You have to take ownership for that. But they, because of that individualistic thinking, yeah. they don't see themselves as those people who perform atrocities against humanity. They don't, they don't connect with them. And I think, you know, that this is what may be missing. 
um, in in this whole piece are these very deep and meaningful conversations where we're really talking about real things, not just, you know, I feel really bad and I'm really sorry about that. It's, you know, what does it mean to you? How do you mm-hmm. feel about me or how do you feel about my culture? Let's let's talk about this openly. How can we have more of these real conversations, the necessary conversations? You're doing it in your environment. How can we have more of these on a global level? Again, that that idea of courage. People have to start them. I mean, it's not hard. It's not difficult. We talk all we communicate in various formats and for various venues all day long. All day long, we're communicating, whether we're speaking verbally or not, communication is occurring. So it takes the courage of someone to step up and say, hey, I want to host some conversations with my friends, with my family, and let it more from there. Let people know it's all grassroots. It's kind of like that grassroots organizing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that same concept. It doesn't have to be anything curriculum-based. It doesn't have to be anything deep. You can start with a book. On my post that I that I made about what's going on and, and what I, because I get a lot of people ask, what can I do? What can I do? Especially uh, white people ask what, what they can do to help. You know, start by educating yourself. So pick a book, have a book discussion, and don't just invite your friends for the book discussion. Invite people who are different from you, mm-hmm. who can different perspective, so it can expand your knowledge. The YWCA here has been doing that. One of their missions is to eradicate racism. So they have been purposely sponsoring what they call study circles or dialogues to action. They're having these conversations to address specifically what we're talking about. Mm. To go to the YWCA to do that. Within your own sphere of influence, you can have your own study group. There's book clubs around the country that people start for whatever reason, for pleasure, for whatever specific purpose, for wellness, for what have you. Why not have a book club around talking about race and racism and how it impacts you as a person, how it impacts people around you. Um, Have those deep conversations internally and connect with people who are different from you. You know, expand your sphere. If you have an inner circle that's made up of people who are just like you, you're doing yourself a disservice mm. because you're not learning any, anything new. You're not expanding. You're not broadening your own horizon, so to speak, and having more, a more rich experience. You're just, I, I, you, know, you think about people who just go over and over the same things over and over again. When you have that group that is just like you, that's the same thing. How do you expect change if you do the same thing over and over again? If you have the same people around you? Who are your yes men and no men, you know, that, that are going to agree with you because they think like you, they're going to agree with you. Yeah. But a lot of people don't want to be challenged. Yeah. You know, hard time with conflict. So that's the other thing that, that I'm, I'm going to say that this idea of conflict, conflict has such a negative connotation. Um, but the only way that we're going to be able to overcome any of this is that we have to start embracing conflict. Mm. I mean, com- comfortable with conflict and learning conflict resolution skills. And, you know, just like racism, how we deal with conflict is embedded in us as we grow up through the years. Yes. We may have to learn different ways to approach conflict and a view conflict. You got people who are conflict avoided. I don't care what you say or do. If I'm a conflict avoidant, I am not addressing anything. I'm turning a deaf ear. Actually, I'm turning my back and I'm walking away. Mm-hmm. People who are conflict um aggressive, so to speak. They want conflict. They can't wait to start conflict. 
know, these some of these are personality traits, mm-hmm. or again that we've learned over the years through our through our families of influence or or our um, inner families, and so we have to challenge some of those things that we've learned, um, those ways that we've learned to deal with things as we've grown up, because a lot of times how we handle conflict in the community is the same way that we've learned to handle conflict within our families. That's so powerful, and that's so potent. <laughs> having conversations, but also learning how to embrace conflict. We don't want to be seen as bad or I don't want to upset the apple cart. So I'm just going to toe the line, but we have to, we have to, in order to affect real change, we have to be able to embrace conflict. Um, and I love that. And um, I think we can move. It's, it's going to be a healthy way to move forward in doing all of this um, and, and how we, how we get better how we improve the situation, how we come to some kind of central ground, understanding the richness of who we all are, this tapestry of human beings. We have to be able to be able to have these discussions and embrace that conflict that may arise, knowing that it doesn't matter, right? We have to, we have to be able to do this in order to get through and get to the other side. So now you mentioned book clubs. I love, I love books. I love reading. And I love that idea. And I loved your post because you did post some books that people can pick up, you know, either in the library or um, a book a bookstore. What are some titles that you would recommend for people to, to get them started if, the, you know, if they're new to this issue? Um, so one book that, that I've been, that we did a book study for my training for the thing with the YWCA is that White Fragility book. Mm. And it's by Robin D'Angelo. And it is a really in-your-face kind of book. And her target audience is not necessarily people who are racist, who view themselves to be racist. It's for those liberals, white liberals, who don't think that they're racist. Mm. You know, for the cause, I'm here, I'm going to go down with you. And she really has some hard-hitting things that she says uh, in regards to the fragility of it all. You know, you mm. say are, but are you really down for the cause? Mm. Perfect example. I, I know you probably heard of what happened in um, Central Park in New York. Yes. Was calling and, uh, and how she just got so upset. She got infuriated. There's a book, a uh, chapter in the book of the, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. It's called White Women's Tears. Mm. That was very enlightening for me because especially when it comes to white women and we think about black women and white women and, and sisterhood and, and, and trying to come together in unity. It's so hard sometimes to talk to white women about race and racial issues because they start crying. Mm-hmm. I mean, immediately they feel so bad about what happened that their first response is to cry, either to cry and apologize, cry and say, I didn't mean it cry and say, I can't believe this has happened to you. What can I do? The tears always come first. And yeah. try to navigate through those tears to get to real solutions or real dialogue is, 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 a, is a chore, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so her book is really hard hitting in the sense that if you're a white, liberal, and it's, again, her target audience is um, white people, white liberals. Um, she, she even talks throughout her book is because she's done diversity trainings. And this, she's kind of sharing the things that she's learned throughout her trainings and dealing with her peers, her white peers, and how to address that. So I think that's a good book. Um, what I think is a real classic is um, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? Okay. Again, and these are, these, these are, these are old, when I say old, but white fragility, white fragility is rather new. 
But why do all the kids sit together and the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? Um, Post-traumatic slave syndrome. Those are the other two books that I mentioned in my post. Those books were written probably in the in the 90s. Some of them, you know, they're, they're 20 years old. Hmm. And there's so much literature out there that's by non-white authors that address these issues of race and racism. People don't know about because those books don't make it to the mainstream. And yes. remember what I said earlier about the benefit of the doubt. The books are there, available, have such rich information, but people don't seek them out because our voices, Black voices, are invalidated. We, yes. for some reason, we, we, we have not, our, our voices have not promo- been promoted in a way um, that mainstream can, benefit, mainstream can benefit from what we have to offer. Yes. Uh, so, um, so those are the three books that I mentioned. Um, there's other books I can't kind of rattle them off at the top of my head. I can't think uh, of them all right now. Mm-hmm. But actually, going through compiling a list, a reading list to help people. Um, there's a book on how to how to be anti-racist. Mm. How do I, how do I become an anti-racist or something like that? Um, there's a professor in um, at Columbia University. His name is Daryl Sue. Now, for many years, I used to teach multicultural counseling for uh, for another university, and we used his book as the textbook. And mm-hmm. I will, I, I just really think that his book, especially if you're a clinician, if you're someone who wants to go into helping counseling and working with communities of color, his book has become the standard, and it really outlines these things that we that have been again ingrained in society and how we deal with people who are non-white. Mm-hmm. And he's um, psychologist who has been studying this. He's 77 years old now, and he's been studying this for years. And his his all anything by Daryl Sue, S U E, is is enlightening around this. He talks about microaggressions. He does a lot of work around microaggressions, micro assaults, mm. invalidations, micro insults. And again, those are the, it's kind of like death by a million pricks. You know, yeah. people aren't overtly doing these things to try to tear somebody down. But it's those little things, those micro things that people do that tear people down. And a lot of his work raises awareness of, of those micro micro insults, just the way that you just invalidate people and their experience, their, experience, their voice, all of those things. Um, so he does some good work with that. And um, anything that, you know, you think about historically, not even just academic literature, so to speak. But what about those poets? Mm. Again, we, we think about social action as just people going out and protesting mm-hmm. and making their voice heard in that way. I mean, the arts, the arts, the genre of the arts is full of information, whether it's visual arts, whether it's communication arts, whether it's media arts, whether it's written or oral. So we're thinking about poetry, books, um, literature, mm. fiction, literature as well as nonfiction. There's a lot out there. You know, one thing about Google and all these different search engines, you don't have to, you only have to put a couple of words in and many resources will pop up for you, but it takes you as a person, you need to take that initiative to seek out that knowledge. You can't wait for somebody to give it to you. Again, you know, we're trying to mitigate this idea of this benefit of the doubt versus invalidating other people's voices. Look for the information yourself, educate yourself. You don't always, have to believe what people say. We also have a society that if people are in a certain position, we take everything that they say as law. And a lot of times it's just their opinion. Mm. We haven't internalized that as being just their opinion. 
And we got to move beyond that. We got to think that, you know, we have the capability, we have the capacity to learn and to grow on our own without anyone um, influencing us one way or the other. We can develop our own ideas about things. And I think that's something important to tell young people. They grow up in a time, you know, we grow up in families where everybody's telling them what to do and mm-hmm. how to do it, when to do it, and which way to do it, all those things. And there has to come a point where we have to tell young people too that you can seek out knowledge on your own and ask for advice. A lot of times they think that we're old, we're ancient, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's 2020 now that whatever you experience happened in X, Y, and Z. Hopefully they can see now that history tends to repeat itself. That's right. So helping people see patterns, I think, is going to be helpful. Young people and adults, they need to, to see the pattern so they can figure out ways that they can disrupt that pattern. Amazing. Seeing the patterns, educating themselves, critical thinking, asking questions, not taking anything for for granted, asking, you know, the question, is that true? Or is that just your opinion? I think all of that's going to be incredibly important. And and as you say, there's such rich information out there, but we have to be able to get people to say, you know, those voices are valid as well. And let me educate myself with those voices, not just what I think I know, but let me find out something new. So before we go, I guess the last question that I have is, do we have hope? Do we have hope? <laughs> Around hope is this my situation? favorite thing. Okay, hope, okay. Hope is my favorite thing. <laughs> hope is my, I think hope is the thing that really, propels us forward and why we engage in the activities and behaviors that we engage in to try to eradicate racism. I mean, you know, there's always hope. And I think that we have to instill in people a sense of hope. Mm. That when people are hopeless is where you see some of these negative um, uh, behaviors occurring. You know, I'm, I'm, I've ran out of hope. So we have to still, I think, encourage people that there is still hope because think about it. We've experienced these things before. Yes, we are experiencing them again, but we've been able to process through and make some changes. I mean, if they're little, I mean, but they're changes nonetheless. Yes. And, you know, without hope, there would be nothing. There would be no movement. We would, ha- we would be stagnant. There would be nothing. So you have to keep a sense of hope even to keep this movement alive. So hope is important in all areas of our life. It's one. It's it, it's what keeps us alive. Mm. From a basic sense, hope is what keeps us alive. It helps us wake up every day. It helps us put on our clothes and walk out that door and engage in the be all of the behaviors that we engage in is all based on that one thing called hope. So we have to keep preaching that hope, it's, and also with young people mm. to hear it. But we have to teach them new strategies on how to deal with what we're dealing. Again, if you're using the same tactics, expecting this different results, patterns have shown us that we probably won't have any different results. Yeah. Take that hope on your shoulders and pack it on your back and put it in your back, your knapsack, your backpack, whatever you want to call it, and force throughout your day. Hope will give you new ideas. <sighs> hope will force you to think differently. You know, hope is that creativity um, center. Mm. You know, hope, all, all things are possible with hope. All ideas are possibly valid if I have hope. So we definitely have to teach hope. And I think a lot of times what happens is that people lose it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
based on situations, circumstances, experience, experiences, they lose it along the way. So it's up to us to also help people restore their hope. So yes. we need to teach hope, hope, but we also have to help, help people restore their hope. And that's a whole nother conversation. Oh my gosh, we could do it. We could do we could do a whole right. other podcast around hope. But right. you know, right. I think I think it's you know it's it's important as you say to to really hold on to that. It may seem that we are hopeless, but we have to have hope because as you say, it's what wakes us up and it's what gives us that inspiration to move forward. And I think that's incredibly important. Thank you so much for reflecting that, Dr. Adrian Bay. This has been so enlightening. Um, so powerful. And I really thank you for being with us here today on The Nudge. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. Thank my you. pleasure. My pleasure. Keep keep the hope alive. Indeed. Well, we'll deal. <laughs> we'll deal. Hope. It's what keeps us alive and inspires us to create, communicate, learn, love, and live. Thank you, Dr. Adrian Bay, for leaving us with such a powerful mandate to keep preaching the message of hope. We need it not only for ourselves, but for our young people. We need them to not only face adversity, but to continue dreaming and striving in spite of it. There is a sea of change coming, I feel it but I know that change can only happen one step at a time, one word at a time, one conversation at a time, one hand extended in friendship at a time, and one hand to receive. One heartfelt request for forgiveness and the healing return of it. So as I sign off today, I wish you that feeling of hope. May the sea of change carry you to a world where we are all united, understanding and celebrating our differences and loving each other because of them. So join me, Kia Eileen, next week with another special guest as we continue to engage with that force always working on our behalf. If you're ready to follow your nudge but you're feeling a bit stuck, go to my website, www.kiaailen.com my Instagram page, Kia Eileen underscore Soul Clarity, or my Facebook page at Kia Eileen. This podcast can be found on Spotify, iTunes, and CastBox, so please subscribe. And remember to follow the nudge, because you never know where it may lead.